So this morning, we're back in the book of 1 John. If you're part of our church community, you'll know that we've been studying the book of 1 John for several weeks now, and we're almost done. We have a couple more chapters to cover off. We've entitled this series, Basic Christianity, not to be confused for baby Christianity or boring Christianity, but because in the book of 1 John, there's several foundational issues that God delivers to his people. And today, the title of the message is The Greatest Command, The Greatest Commandment. So you can probably guess that we're going to be talking a bit about love today. And as we do, our hope and prayer is that each of us will evaluate the degree to to which we have truly invested in other people as Christ has invested in us. And we're so thankful for God's word. You know, when you have sore muscles, you get out that bomb and you put it on to to relax your muscles and make them feel better. Uh, The word of God is like a bomb as well. And it serves to relax us and give us perspective and to soothe us during difficult times. So we trust that your time in the word with us will be a blessing. Well, I've I've never been one to over-parent. I have five children. Of course, three of them are adults now, so my parenting style has to adjust accordingly. But I've never been one to over-parent. I I feel it's important. I've always felt it's important to give children a fair degree of flexibility and to expect them to mature and to grow up. I don't treat my children... um, in a lesser way than, than their age. I like to kind of stretch them. I like to encourage them to grow up. I've often said to people, when you're raising children, you're raising adults, not children. So you want to push them toward maturity. So I've never been one to overparent my children. But at the same time, in our home, my children would tell you that we have some cut and dry black and white rules. And we're not flexible on these things. One of the rules that I've communicated to my children is that they cannot say no to me if I ask them to do something. Every once in a while, you're in a mall or you're even in the church foyer, and you, you hear a, a parent make a request to their child, and the child says no. And to me, that, that's always been kind of shocking. I think it's so disrespectful for children to reject parental authority in that way. So we've just said to our kids, don't ever say no. That's like a swear word in our house. You don't say no. And so for the most part, our kids have been are pretty good in that department. However, one of the challenges that uh, we've had over the years with our children, really all of them in some way, shape, or form, is forgetfulness. And the interesting thing about forgetfulness is while forgetfulness is not motivated by that, that anti-authoritarian, rebellious attitude that, that is present in a child that just says no, it, it, it's, it's not motivated by the same thing. Nevertheless, It results in the same thing, doesn't it? And that is inaction. So whether a person just says to their parent, no, I'm not going to do it, or they just forget to do what their parent has asked them to do, the, the end result is essentially the same. Their parents' wishes are not followed. It's not intentional, but the result is the same. As we enter into God's word today, I think it's true. I think you would agree with me that there are very few Christians that I've ever met that would dare to read a clear-cut commandment or instruction from God and then would just say, nope, 
not going to do it. Now, the greatest commandment in the Bible is for us to love God and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. I I don't know if I've ever met a Christian that would just say to me, no, I'm not going to do it. Not going to love anybody. I'm comfortable hating people. I think most believers, true believers, are going to want to be loving. They're going to desire to express love with their words, their actions, their presence to other people. But the challenge that we often have is in the area of forgetfulness. It's not that we don't want to, but we become distracted. We become so focused on ourselves, our own needs, our own desires, our own lives, that we forget to love one another. And so in the book of 1 John, it's, it's a relatively short book. We have five chapters. But in the book of 1 John, time and time and time again, the apostle comes back to this foundational theme of loving one another and loving God. And so as I preach this message today, in some respect, I feel like I'm just re-preaching messages I've preached in the past, but it's actually a different text. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21, as we return again to this love theme that is so dominant in this short little epistle. John bridges love for others, by the way, to love for God. He sees a connection there. Love for others is connected to our love for God, and vice versa. Our love for God is connected to our love for others. So join me in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. And again, for the third time, John is returning to this vital Christian theme of love. It seems to me that God must think this is rather important. Now, as we are about to read this text, let's just acknowledge something about our broken humanity. As human beings, we have a natural bent to focus on ourselves. Do we not? We are more selfish than we probably would ever feel comfortable admitting. Especially when we're under pressure. We see this in the current crisis where people are hoarding and worried about their own jobs and their own security and their own circumstances and probably not thinking a whole lot about the guy that lives across the street whose circumstances might be worse. We have this natural tendency to fixate on self, but God is calling us to love others, to fixate on others. And so maybe an exercise that you could do if you're still unsure about how you score in the area of love for others would be to take three people that you know well, maybe some family members or some friends, and ask them this vulnerable question. How loving do you perceive me to be? Is it evident that I love people? Or is it possible that love is very much perceived to be absent in my life? So here's the big idea. Love is the greatest command. Love for God and love for others. So how do I get there? Do I like psych myself up for it? Is that what God is calling me to do? Do I, do I look within and try to will myself into 
Loving other people? No. Here's what we find to be refreshing about this passage. God is going to be teaching us that the love that we have for others actually comes from God. And as God dispenses love into our lives, he then equips us and enables us to love other people. So you don't have to find it within yourself. And if you're wondering, how is it possible then for me to put this commandment into practice? It seems so challenging. What you need to begin with is just to know the source. And the source of love for others is not you, and it's not me, and it's not society, and it's not someone telling us, hey, you need to be more loving. But the source of love is God. We love God when God's presence enables us to love him. And we love others when God's presence enables us to love others. So join me in the seventh verse, and I'm going to start by reading verses 7 through 12. Again, this is 1 John chapter 4. Speaking in tender language to the people of God, John says, Beloved, let us love one another. It's reciprocal. That's what one another means. For love is, notice the source, from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. That's a categorical statement there. Because God is love. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest to us, meaning demonstrated to us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. Notice we have here truth about God and his love and the work of Christ, but application is woven all through it. The love of God is not just something to put on a text on your wall or on a bumper sticker on your car to tweet out to your friends. But this truth of God's love is supposed to become operative in our lives as we learn and choose to love one another. And then finally, verse 12 says, No one has ever seen God. That's true. We haven't seen God with our physical eyes. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what we want to do as we study this text is look for repetition. And you'll notice that in verses 7, 11, and 12, we have the same language being used repeatedly. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. In a very short passage of scripture, three times, verses 7, 11, and 12, we are called to love one another. Three times here, and then there are three separate passages in the book of 1 John that also speak to this issue. So time and time and time again, multiple times, God is calling us to love one another. And again, one another means it's reciprocal. It's kind of circular. We could say it's supposed to be a trait that characterizes the community of faith. 
So I'm called to love you and you are called to love me. And then I, I'm called to love the person next to me. And then you're called to love the person next to you. And then they're called to love me. And then I'm called to love them. And it's, it's supposed to be a characteristic, a trait that is super evident among the people of God. It's not optional. It's not a personality trait reserved for a select few. We could say, Squirrels climb trees, fish swim in water, and Christians love one another. It's just who we are. It's how we roll. It's fundamental to our identity to love one another. Now, I've been thinking about this a little bit in light of the current virus, the COVID virus, the coronavirus that is present in the world today and that has shaken a lot of people up, caused a lot of damage, and will continue to do so. We have many well-meaning people using words like, you know, we got we to handle this together. We got to be a team. We got to come together. We got to be united. And I understand that. And I think that's Great and wonderful, but I also know because I've read my Bible that deep down, much of that is not motivated by a love that has come from God. You see, if you don't know God and you're an unbeliever and you're calling people to teamwork or unity, you you might be doing it because you think that, well, I I love people and I have a heart for other people, but deep down, there's some self-preservation going on there. There's some politicking going on there. There's a desire to keep your job going on there. There's a desire to look good going on there. There's a a tendency to want to sort of project a, a compassion and a love for people there in order to benefit oneself. And the reason for that, as harsh as that might seem, as judgmental as that might seem, is that in and of ourselves, apart from Jesus, we don't have the capacity to actually love other people. We have a bent toward self-love. And the proof of this will be when we fast forward several months or several years and We've had time to analyze and assess what's taking place. And we look back on those calling us to teamwork and unity. And we ask ourselves a simple question. Are they, are they still as committed to teamwork and unity now as they were back in 2020? And the answer will be no. You see, we don't have the ability to sustain love and to truly love and to truly look out for others. We just don't. Unless we've experienced a love from God that enables us and sustains us to love one another. Our bent is toward self-preservation, self-righteousness, self-aggrandizement. That's our bent. But for the believer who's encountered God's love, and we have, who knows Jesus Christ, our sustained ability to love others, Hear me carefully. Our sustained ability to love others is sustained by God alone. Praise God for that. 
The opposite then is also true. When we're starting to hate other people and despise other people, you know what that says about us? We're drifting from God. We're forgetting about the gospel. We've, we've lost sight of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's the reason. That's the reason. This provides us, by the way, with great insight into the question that all of us have probably asked ourselves at various times, even in our Christian journeys. The question, why is it that I don't love people a little more than I do? Why, why didn't I meet that need when I saw the need? Why, why didn't I offer that word of encouragement? Why, why did I walk the other direction? Why? Because we've started to drift away from God. The source, the ultimate example of love is the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, he's more than an example He's more than a model. He's more than a guy that got it right. I think a lot of secularists sort of see Jesus that way. They would acknowledge he was a great teacher and he was super sacrificial and he was loving and all that. But it's just like a guy that sort of, you know, got his act together early on. But no, no. The reason why Jesus loved us the way that he did is because he was God and he was sent by the Father. And he accomplished something that we're not hardwired to do. He loved us in an amazing way. If you look at the text, we have reminders here that one of God's greatest manifestations of love comes to us in Jesus. Now, are there other ways that God manifests his love? Yeah, God is loving on himself and loving upon the heavenly beings all the time in heaven, and we don't necessarily have access to that. It's not like the only time and the only place that God ever showed love was on the cross. But for our purposes, if we look at the biblical text, it says in verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So one of the greatest manifestations or demonstrations of God's love for humanity was in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. Now we could ask some questions of this text just to kind of help us to understand it a little bit more. One would be who came? Verse nine answers that question. It was the son that came. He's called the son here. Oftentimes people think, well, the son, that means he's like, you know, God's little boy. No, he's not God's little boy. The word son speaks to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It speaks to the absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ. When the Bible says he's the only begotten son, he's the unique expression of God's love to us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who, who came? The only one that could actually demonstrate this kind of love to us came. And that is the eternal son of God. What did he come for? What did he come for? Verse nine also answers that question. God sent his son into the world so that, that answers the purpose question, so that we might live through him. His purpose is so that we might live. Now, the reason why this is a, such a gift is because we're all dying. Again, I'm sure all of you are watching the news multiple times a day. 
You're on social media. You're hearing about all the deaths. And in no way, shape, or form do I want to downplay that. But did you know that just on an average day on planet Earth, where there's no special virus raging, just on an average day, every single day on planet Earth, check this out, 150,000 people die just on an average day? We don't talk about that much, do we? But 150,000 people every single day, on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, again on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, week after week, month after month, there's 150,000 people dying and going into eternity. And there's going to come a day when that daily number includes you. We're all in the process of dying. That's a reality. But Jesus came so that we might live. So that he might ultimately rescue us from physical death through the bodily resurrection of the saints, spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15. And ultimately from spiritual death. See, we've, heard, we've talked about this several times in our church community, but I want to just kind of remind you of this. That each of us is born once and we will die at least once. But if we're only born once, we'll actually die twice. We'll die physically and we will die spiritually as a consequence of sin. But if we're born twice, then we only die once. We're all going to be born physically, but if we're also born spiritually, if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we reach out in faith and trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Then yeah, we'll still be part of the 150,000 that will die at some day in the future, some appointed day in the future. But spiritual death will not be our lot in life. God will rescue us from that. So why did Jesus come? What was his purpose in coming? Just to sort of like be super loving? No. His love had a purpose attached to it. And that purpose was so that we might eternally live. So what does this result in? Who came? The son came. For what? So that we might live. What did this result in? A salvation. A redemption. A rescue that is not based on our love for God. Verse 10 is explicit on this. Not our love for God, but on Christ's propitiation for our sins. Now, this is a fancy word. It's come up earlier in this epistle. We've described it previous, but if you weren't in on that message, I'll describe it to you briefly. But before I do that, I just want to kind of go back and park on this notion that's in verse 10. Really, it's it's a lie that God is correcting. And it's this lie that we tend to love God. Verse 10 makes it pretty clear. God doesn't love us because we first loved him. No. Oh, I don't know. Like... I remember coming to the end of my rope, and I remember when I became a Christian, I, I remember 
cleaning up my act and I started to attend church a lot and I was reading my Bible a lot and I started giving away my money and I was, you know, helping out of the street mission and I don't know. I, I think I sort of was, I, I maybe deserve a little bit of credit. God's like, no, you don't. You know what that is? That's the exact same claim. It's repackaged, of course, using different language. That's the exact same claim that is present in every false religion in the world. Study false religions. It's amazing how similar they are. They're going to tell you the same thing. There's going to be different names attached, different language used. But at the end of the day, false religion says, you deserve a little bit of credit because you went to church or you got baptized or you showed up at the mosque or the temple, or you read some spiritual book, or you performed some spiritual ritual, or you were just super gracious and super nice. So God or the gods or whatever you call God saw that and gave you some credit for it. That's false religion, folks. The reason why we love is not because we just woke up one day and said, you know what? I I gotta, I gotta start loving. It's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a smoker. I'm smoking too much. I'm just going to make a decision today to get rid of the cigarettes. It's not like that. The reason why we love is because God first loved us. And his love for us wasn't just sort of like an internal, oh, I really love you. My heart's beating fast for you. I love people. They're so cute. Look at this little world that I've created. They're so small. I just, no, no, he, he didn't just love us sentimentally or emotionally, he accomplished something. And the biblical word that's used here is propitiate. How many of you have used that word this week in a conversation? Probably not. So we need to describe it. It means he atoned for our sin. Maybe this would be clearer. It means that he assumed the obligations that we had to God for our own spiritual crimes. He assumed them upon himself. The punishment that we deserved for the rebellion and the hatred and the gossip and the lies and the lust and the perversion that we have committed against a holy God. The punishment that we rightly deserve for those things. Jesus Christ assumed those obligations died for them, paid for our sins. We did the crime and he went to jail and did the time for us. This is the basis of salvation. And so when the time comes, when the sinner is convicted of their sin and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and repents of their sin, it's like, what's the basis upon which God can say, okay, You've believed and you've repented. You're converted. What's the basis of that? It's the propitiatory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the fact that Jesus on the cross assumed the punishment, the obligations that we owed to God. You need to know this, by the way. That might seem mildly um, kind of difficult to understand on a certain level or complicated, but it's fundamental to the gospel that you understand this that Jesus Christ assumed the obligations that you owed to God for your sins on the cross. And that is, that is the foundation upon which conversion happens and spiritual regeneration takes place. Now, I would say, if you think about that, that's pretty concrete. 
Jesus didn't just say, oh, I love you. You're so cute. He loved us in a dramatic way, in a concrete way, in an absolute way through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the same way, our love for others must be concrete as well. Hear me this. Hear me on this church. It's not enough for us to just send people nice thoughts. It's not enough for us to just pray for grace and blessings. You know, some prayers coming your way, sending you my thoughts. <laughs> That's not enough. Our love must be a verb, an action. And I think we're in a unique place in human history to be able to demonstrate a whole lot of love to people during this challenging time. Think about the opportunities that God has unpacked for his church to be a loving presence and a blessing to other people. If we have the capacity, we can deliver food to people. We can use our telephones. You know, we all got these cell phones. They cost us a lot of money. Why not use them for gospel ministry? We can give people a phone call, see how they're doing. Of course, we can pray for people on the phone or even on our own. We can write them letters. I heard of a person this week that was writing letters and distributing them in their apartment building, and then people would write them back. I thought that was a cool idea. We can send cards. We can shoot people an email, a text. We can send them money, help to pay their bills during challenging times. We can give them a little bit of grace. You know, some people aren't necessarily going to act in a great way during this time. They're going to say things. They're going to post things that may not be super awesome, but they're under stress. They're worked up. We can exercise some grace to one another during the challenges of life. You know, human contrived love, love that comes from me or from you apart from God, is going to sound something like this. I'll love you because you are worthy and you are wonderful. But that's not God's love. God's love is, I'm going to love you even though you're unworthy. And frankly, you're dreadful at times. That's the love that God demonstrates to us. So where's the source? You need to know the source. It's not, work yourself up into some emotional lather. When you connect with God, you now have the spirit of Christ in you. Your life has been transformed by the gospel. Now you have a basis. Now you have concrete love. Demonstrated to us by God to put into practice to those around you. So here's the second thing. You can now enjoy the benefits. Did you know that there's benefits to you when you love other people? Might sound unchristian. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, that, that means that I'm going to be kind of motivated to do it, you know, for 
personal gain. Well, the, the reality is, is that when we do the right thing, either in the now or the not yet, we benefit from it too. Either through eternal blessings or some of the temporal blessings that God has for us in the here and now. And one of the benefits that's spoken of again in 1 John, which was spoken of back in chapter 3, is that when we love, love actually builds confidence in our own salvation. Think about that. When I love other people, that builds the confidence in me that I truly am a child of God. It increases my assurance. In verse 13, it says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now hear me clearly. Love is not the means of salvation, but it is a marker of salvation. If you've truly been transformed by God, if you've truly been impacted by the propitiatory atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you get that. You're going to be changed. And it testifies, according to this verse, to the Spirit's activity in us. And then verse 14, and we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We've seen it through eyes of faith, and we talk about it a lot. We testify to the gospel. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So here we have more proof of God's love coming to us in Jesus. He's kind of cycling back to uh, themes that have earlier been preached. More proof of God's love comes to us in Jesus. Now, if you look at this statement, and it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God's God abides in him and he in God. We could kind of take that in a couple of different ways. We could say, well, if I, does that mean that if I continue to confess that Jesus is the son of God, God will choose to continue to abide. And if I choose not to confess, God will no longer abide. Is that what that means? I don't think so. I think what it means is we do not confess in order to get him to abide in us. But our confession proves that he abides in us. Again, our confession proves that he abides in us. Whoever, so if I confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that proves to you that God abides in me. But if I'm habitually a hater and I have no concern for you and your welfare, you for mine, then it calls into question, man, like, How can you say you've been spiritually born again when there's no evidence in your life? This is powerful because far too many people run around. They say, well, the only thing I need to know is truth. If I get truth right, if I get the truth of the gospel right, then I'm good to go with God. Apparently, fruit is a necessary byproduct of a transformed life. Apple trees grow apples. Orange trees grow oranges, and Christians love other people. It's an an inevitable and necessary outcome of a truly transformed life. 
and it's personal. Check out verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We've come to know it. It's not just some cerebral thing out there on a doctrinal statement. We've come to know it. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected. I love that word. We're going to come back to it. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence. I'm looking for some of that. For the day of judgment because... As he is, so also are we in this world. You know, sometimes when you read passages like this, there's, there's a little bit of complexity there, and you kind of got to read it and reread it. But I, I hope that I'm doing my job in helping to explain to you the, the gist of what is being said here. By this, look at verse 17. Is love perfected? Now, does that mean that in this life we can get to a point where we literally are perfect in the sense of without error, without flaw, without failure in the area of love? No. You ever ever met anybody that's like 100% of the time, without fail, never misses a beat, absolutely and totally loving? Never met such a person. The word perfect oftentimes in Scripture is meant to communicate the idea of deep maturity. Now, to be mature doesn't mean that there's never a nanosecond where you're immature. You could say, man, you're very mature. And then the next minute, the person does something mildly immature. But it's an exception. Most of the time, they are mature. And so perfection here is not to be thought of as flawlessness, but full maturity. It's going to be present in your life if you're a follower of the Lord. Now, it is a do, an action, a verb, but it's also a character quality in you. It abides in you. Now, this is where I want to just kind of take us back to the third chapter of the same epistle. And we preached on this a couple of weeks ago. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, the language of that verse says, for whenever our heart condemns us, for whenever our heart condemns us. And as I preached, in that context, what's being talked about there is the fact that even in seasoned believers, every once in a while, you're going to do something wrong, you're going to sin, you're going to mess up. And there's going to be something in you that's going to be like, man, am I, am I really saved? Am I really a child of God? And you're going to be potentially overcome with sin and shame and that sin and that shame and that guilt is going to condemn you. God wants us to move beyond that. Now, we know in the gospel, we've all read, hopefully, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, for what the law was powerless to do, and then it was weakened by sinful man. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering for us. We know that. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. That speaks of our position, our status before God. But sometimes our status before God is like overruled by our heart. And our heart, as it evaluates our inadequacies, condemns us. And I start to wonder like, oh my, am I, 
have I truly been saved? Am I actually born again? Do I actually have a relationship with God? Why am I such a jerk? Why did I do that? Why did I say that again? And our heart condemns us. Well, into that, God calls us to evaluate ourselves in the area of love. And as we love others, you know what love does? As we love others, because it's not, an, it's not natural. Don't let anybody tell you it's natural. It's not innate. As you see yourself loving on other people, it increases. The biblical word here is your confidence in your faith. So others benefit when you love them, but guess what? You also benefit when you love other people and that it testifies to God's regenerative enabling work in your life. So we could kind of say it this way. If I'm living my life and every night I, I'm, I'm going to bed and I'm kind of looking back on my day and I'm evaluating how I used this day and I can identify times in my life in that day when I loved on other people in thought and word and deed. The conclusion I should draw is not, wow, I'm such an awesome guy. Because I'm not. But the conclusion I should draw is, wow, God is clearly operating in my life because by nature, I'm not even bent in that direction. So true love affirms that God is at work. So if your theology is, oh no, I have the ability to sort of just conjure up love inside of me because I'm innately good. You know, you're overplaying this idea that humans are depraved or sinful. We're all born innocent. Hey, then you know what? What you're actually doing is you're decreasing your capacity to be assured of your faith because you can start taking credit for your own righteousness. But when you understand that your righteousness is actually enabled by God and you see Christ's righteousness operative in your life, assurance goes up, confidence goes up, and it just keeps increasing. And the likelihood of your heart condemning you goes down and down and down. So your your attitude, your outlook, now lines up with the reality of God's redemptive work in our lives as we read about in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. God says he's not interested in condemning us. There's no condemnation, but we still feel that way. But as we allow God to work in our lives and we act like Jesus, then my, my attitude lines up with what I believe to be true, that the Bible says to be true. This is the benefit to us. Fear goes away. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. This verse is often misused and misapplied or just kind of stripped out of context because it's, it's kind of nicely worded. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But what's, what is it actually talking about? Does it mean when I, when I love people, I shouldn't be afraid of them pushing me away? No, it's talking about the fear that I might have in questioning my salvation all the time, in doubting whether I'm actually a child of God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In other words, mature love, as a mature in love, I no longer come to God in fear, wondering, Lord, do you still love me? Do you really, you know, did you really do a good work in my life? I know he did, because I'm not naturally a nice guy. I'm not naturally giving and sacrificial and forgiving. That's not me, and that's not you, apart from Jesus. You might contrive it, you might fake it, you might try to 
put on a certain loving face because in some deep way you're benefiting from it. But true selfless love is from God. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected, meaning matured in love. Now, I got to admit, in some respects, I do feel like I'm, again, re-preaching passages that I've already preached from. But this is actually a new and fresh passage for us as a church. And it's because God is returning to this same theme time and time again. He wants us to love others and he wants us to grow up in maturity and in the assurance of our faith. Now, a couple more verses, just in case. And I've alluded to this already. Just in case you're tempted to take a little bit of credit, just a little bit, for your ability to love others. You need to read on. Have you ever um, tried to steal glory from someone else? You tried to take credit for something that you didn't do, maybe at work? Maybe you had some minor contribution, but you try to inflate your significance in a project you worked on or something that was accomplished. Well, here's what it says. We love because he first loved us. So it just kind of takes us back around. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what's the next line? It's harsh. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must. That's categorical, folks. That's a commandment. That's like me saying to my kids, don't say no. That's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's from God, but we must also act on it and love one another. So here we have it. A reminder for some, maybe new teaching for others. A radical call to love other people. How has God uniquely positioned you? in this unique time in history to love on other people? What's your circle of influence look like? It's different than mine. What are your, what kind of time do you have? What are your talents? What are your treasures? What has God uniquely given you that he wants you to go and invest in other people? This is a radical call to love others. Will we fail and forget? Maybe at times, but hopefully less and less as we mature, as our faith is perfected to a greater and greater degree. Hopefully we will, as we mature, love more, love more, think less about self and pour our lives out for the honor and glory of God as we invest in other people. Don't look within to find love, look beyond, look to Jesus and let him enter into you in fullness. Let his spirit fill you to the brim with his presence 
and his love. And then you will be well equipped to love others just as he has loved you. Let's pray this week that God would give us opportunities to put his holy word into practice so that we might incarnate the gospel and be a blessing to a lost and a dying and a scared world.